Escape from Plan A. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host today, Diana, and I'm joined by writer Paula Yu. Hello. Hi. So Paula is a really special guest. She's a former journalist and a writer who has a lot of really, really awesome projects coming up. And one of which is a book about Vincent Chin. Thank you. Yes, I'm I'm actually really excited about this book. It is young adult narrative nonfiction book coming out from an imprint called Norton Young Readers. It's an imprint of W.W. Norton and Company. It's coming out this spring 2021. And the editor is Simon Boughton, who's a really famous children's book publisher and editor. Uh, yeah, so the book's coming out next year. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I think it's a really relevant time to be thinking about Vincent Chin. Now we all kind of know about Vincent Chin, but we don't necessarily know like the specifics of what happened, the legal battles that ensued, because there were multiple trials, as well as, you know, like we, we kind of know, but we don't really know exactly how this case actually galvanized the Asian American um, like consciousness or movement. Yeah, consciousness, just like being aware of our, our place as Asian Americans, you know, and just like, mm-hmm. like knowing even what to call ourselves. And I think it is helpful to know today to like just know what can happen and like what you'd be up against. Like what kind of core battles would you face if you actually tried to seek legal action and just how hard it is to actually get justice. Yeah, no, no, this this all, this all makes sense. I actually had to do some new reporting and new interviews because of the coronavirus and the global pandemic and the spike in anti-Asian hate crimes. And so I thought that was was just a little exciting. It was exciting to have some breaking news and to realize how relevant and how current this case still is, this killing that happened in 1982. I've been seeing Vincent Chin's name on social media a lot. I also wish I didn't have to write this book. I wish that this had never happened. Uh, I wish there wasn't a spike in racism, but this is our reality. Yeah, like I remember in 2014 or something, if anybody even knew who Vincent Chin was, they would probably say, oh, yeah, but that was like back in the 80s. You know, we made so much progress since then. Like something like that would never happen now. (laughs) Yeah, surprise. Vincent Chin is also, I think, a symbol of we can't become complacent. We always have to have we have to have our guard up. Can we go directly into the case? Because I think there's like a lot to go into there. Yes. Okay. In 1982, Detroit, the big three car companies, Ford, Chrysler, and GM, their sales were starting to drop because they were still making gas guzzler type cars. um, And we were having problems with oil prices back in the 70s. So enter Japan with their more fuel efficient cars, such as Honda and Toyota, etc. So because of this, and because of the recession that was starting to happen, uh, the big three started laying off auto workers. This soon led to a lot of anti-Jack Japanese sentiment against the cars because they blamed Japan and their imports for destroying a lot of these auto workers who lost all their life savings and they lost their homes. Uh, they just lost everything. Excuse me? What? 
Yeah. Excuse. They lost their. Yeah. No, I'm. Yeah. That's no. Not, I know. But that, I'm, just because yeah, they lost. I'm their, just explaining what. Yeah. I mean, that's what they. Well, that's what they thought. That's what they but, thought exactly. Yeah. They were like, I, I lost everything because. But what they didn't realize was no, the big three should have been paying attention and trying to make cars that could compete. You know, why don't? Why didn't you try to make a more fuel efficient car, etc. And wh- or like, what happened to pensions? Or like, what's going yeah. on? Like, they didn't save any money. They, they just like everything was dependent on this company that doesn't make any sense either it's it's, a lot of this didn't make any sense but basically so what this led to was people are looking for a scapegoat just like with the coronavirus today they're looking for a scapegoat and so what happened was the car companies would have these quote-unquote and forgive me i don't want to trigger anyone but i have to say it uh they used racist slurs they would say hey for a dollar here's a sledgehammer and you can beat a jap car So they would take sledgehammers and beat the crap out of a Japanese import car. This was on the news uh, and the the money would go to help the unemployed auto workers and they would bash out their frustrations on these cars. And we even had Democrats, we had congressmen, we had politicians talking about the quote unquote trade war and and describing the Japanese car companies as the little yellow people. There were bumper stickers that said, park your import in Tokyo, or, uh, you know, this is our Pearl Harbor. And what was interesting, though, was they never said anything about Volkswagen or, uh, you know, the European imports, it was specifically the Mm -hmm. Japanese, it was it was an easy scapegoat and hate crimes, which that term didn't exist back then. But there was a noticeable spike in people of Asian descent in Detroit, where people would get yelled at for um, just driving down the road, even if they were driving an American car, because they were Asian looking, they'd be like, Oh, you racist word here. And uh, it was it was it was pretty bad. Now, having said all this, I do want to say that I worked for the Detroit News. I lived in Detroit from 1993 to 95 in the city. I am hashtag Detroit strong. Absolutely love Detroit so much. We go back all the time to visit family and friends. And there were a lot of good people in Detroit that did not do that. So I do want to make that clear that it wasn't everybody, but it was a lot of people. I don't think you need to say that on this podcast. Oh yeah, I mean, well, you know, here's the thing. I think what Vincent Chin what did was he brought together the people that were like this is not good. So oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's what mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, but until Vincent Chin, people were getting away with this. It was it was not a you yeah. know, wow. and so you know because of what happened to Vincent Chin, that was a wake up call for a lot of non Asian people in Detroit to go wait a minute. This is horrible. I did so much primary research. The letters to the editor written by African-American and white Americans in Detroit that were pro, you know, we support uh, Vincent Chin's family. I mean, they they were so inspiring and so just it it gave my heart hope reading those letters. And so I think to Vincent Chin's uh, legacy, he united uh, a lot of different communities together. That's one of the greatest legacies of this, this crime. So anyway, going back, so what happened was I'm just trying to set up the backdrop. This is what happened. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of hate. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of just, we're looking for a scapegoat. So enter Vincent Chin. Chinese American is about to get married, is going out with his friends, a multiracial group. He had two two of his best friends were white and his other best friend was Chinese American. Four of them went to a bunch of bars. It was a boys night out bachelor party. He just wanted to have a last night out with the guys before his wedding. They go out. Wow. They end up, of course, you know, going to an exotic dance nightclub. It was called the Fancy Pants. 
nightclub. <laughs> I know you, you can't make this up. And uh, so, so they went there and that's when they met Ronald Ebens and his stepson, Michael Nitz. And that's where, and I can, I'll walk you through what exactly happened, but just taking a step back, there are so many ironies, so many heartbreaking ironies behind this, what happened on the night of June 19th, 1982, because Vincent Shin was working part-time at a restaurant to support, you know, he wanted to have a family. He was, he was engaged. He wanted to have a big family. He was going to, you know, move every, his mom, Lily Chin and his bride-to-be, they were going to live in the same house. He Aww. was, uh, he had just gotten promoted at a part-time job that he had at an engineering firm and he was going to school. So he was living the American dream. It's just like work, you know, working at the restaurant. And the, the heartbreaking thing was he got his shift ended early. Had his shift not ended early, he wouldn't have been like, hey, I, let's have a guy. It was a very impulsive, he called the guys and said, hey, let's go out. I got out of work early. Wow. That means he was working so hard. He wasn't yes. even going to have a bachelor party mm-hmm. if not for his shift ending early. Yeah, that's why actually the wedding was planned on a Monday because uh, the weekend was when you got the most money mm-hmm. in tips at the Chinese restaurant. Oh so the, the the wedding was actually on a Monday. So everyone could, because that's the day they have off. And, you know, so so they were they were so, you know, this is this is not crazy rich Asians. This is crazy yeah, working class hustling. Asians. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, so uh, this is, you know, how conscientious he was. And Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz were actually going to go to the Tiger Stadium. They were, they were going to go see a Detroit Tigers game against uh, Milwaukee. But on their way there, they heard on the radio that it was a blowout. The, the Tigers were losing like 10-0. So they're like, ah, let's do something else. Hey, let's go to this bar. It's oh, fucking heartbreaking. The Ebens guy, like the, the son-in-law, he was laid off. Was he a foreman? Was he the foreman? Oh, okay. Yeah, this is a, that's a good question. So one of the problems, I think, with the Vincent Chin case is that there's a lot of urban legend and a lot of inaccuracies that constantly get reported. So to set the record straight, Ronald Ebens was a foreman. He was in management at Chrysler. So he was employed at the time. Whenever you hear about Vincent Chin, the shortcut description is two unemployed auto workers angry about the Japanese car competition beat Vincent Chin to death because they thought he was Japanese and blamed him for everything that happened. The the dad was the the management guy. He, the dad was for, foreman. The son, Michael, the stepson, Michael Nitz, uh, he was in his early 20s. He was, he had just been laid off and was getting severance. From, from what job? He also worked at Chrysler and he was laid off and he was at- Was he a, in management? No, he was just a factory line guy. He worked in the factory. Okay. And he was laid off like many people were back then. And he was actually working part-time at a furniture store delivering furniture and taking classes in college part-time. So he was actually working on getting his degree. Let me back up for a second there. The typical narrative is like these two economically depressed, laid-off white guys blamed this Asian guy who was doing well, you know, Mm -hmm. he was like some engineering student, Mm -hmm. and they that's why they committed a hate crime. First of all, that's not true. Only the son was laid off, but that was like, what, a summer job or like, you know, like the dad was in management. He was working at the same company. Even if 
he, you know, stayed, he didn't get a college degree, he would have like worked his way up to management because he had those connections. And now this guy is going to college, doesn't need, he's not, he's not, they're not doing poorly is what I'm saying. Yeah. Meanwhile, the victim is actually hustling so hard. Mm-hmm. He had two jobs and was going to night school. Yeah. And he was, yeah. And he was working so hard mm-hmm. that he wasn't even going to have a bachelor party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, 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 uh, yeah. He, he was actually the hustler. He was the one working his, yeah. his butt off. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so so that kind of sets up a little bit of the, the backdrop of what was going on. So he they ended up going to a couple of bars. They ended up at the Fancy Pants. And, you know, at this point, they're drinking in the parking lot, that kind of thing, because uh, with strip clubs back then or exotic dance night clubs, uh, there was a no liquor policy. You know, so they only served you know soda, orange juice. And so they snuck in a bottle of vodka and they ordered a bunch of orange juice. And so they were making, you know, screwdrivers and things like that. And what happened was they were already they're sitting there when Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz showed up because they decided not to go to the baseball game. They sat across the stage because there was a catwalk in the middle of the club. And basically what I'm about to say is still, it's all he said, he said, but one of the dancers one of the employees there, Racine Colwell, she testified in both trials, which I'll go to later, she testified that she overheard Ronald Ebens yell at Vincent Chin and say, "It's be- and forgive my language here, but I'm going to give you the full quote, it's because of you little motherfuckers that were out of work. And, and Ronald Ebens to this day and on the stand denied ever saying that. However, Racine Colwell to this day remains firm and said in both trials, no, I heard him say that. So that quote is what eventually found that plus other evidence is what uh, in the first trial he was found guilty. Getting ahead of myself, we'll get to the trial because it's a little bit complicated. But pulling back, what had happened was uh, they, they got into a fight. They just started. There's, there's a lot of details, but I'm trying to give you the short version. Basically, I think it had to do with Vincent Chin and his friends. There was one dancer that moved over to where Ronald and his stepson were sitting. And they basically, they just basically were uh, giving Vincent a hard time. Other witnesses claim that they heard the words chink and nip nippon. And and so they claim that they heard it. However, you know, to this day, Ronald Evans denies ever using those words, but everyone was drunk. We, We can never know for sure, but there are certain things that we do know for sure. So basically what happened was they got into a fight. They were all kicked out. Chairs were thrown. A chair somehow hit the back of Michael Nitz's head. So he needed stitches. Ronald Evans was furious about that. Uh, Vincent and his friends got kicked out. They were in, they were in the parking lot. Here's another heartbreaking irony. They were going to leave, but they had to wait because one of the friends went to the bathroom. So Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz came out first. They were waiting for the other friend. Vincent still hyped up on alcohol and just really angry about what happened. You know, said, "Do you want to fight some more?" And so at this point, Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz opened the back of their car because they both loved baseball. They played in an amateur league, and in fact, Michael Nitz was a star baseball player in high school, very talented young man with the, with the sports. So they pull out Michael Nitz's baseball bat, which is a Louisville slugger. It's a Jack, and the irony is it's a Jackie Robinson Louisville slugger, and he pulls it out. Now to this day, and in the trial, it's, again, I'm just giving, I'm, I'm just telling you what, I'm not imposing any opinion here. Their point of view was they were scared because they were out, because then Bob, uh, the other friend came out. So they claimed we were worried because it was 
four against two. So we pulled out the bat to protect ourselves and we ch- and Vincent saw the bat and ran. So Ebens then ran down, chased him for a little bit, ran out of breath. They got in the car. Now here's the controversy. Vincent Chin then ran about almost a mile to a nearby McDonald's and his friend, the other Chinese American friend, ran after him. He caught up with him. They were sitting outside the parking lot of McDonald's. Meanwhile, Ronald Ebens and his son were driving because he wanted to take his son to the nearest hospital that was just a couple miles away from that McDonald's. So they were going in the same direction. And that's when they saw him and they got really mad. And what Ronald Ebens did testify was he said, I saw them laughing and something snapped in me. They pulled over the car, brought over the baseball bat. And then that's when he was beaten. Uh, he tried to run away. He hit him in the head. Yeah, they He tried to run away. Uh, the stepson held him down and then he managed to escape, ran into the middle of the road, uh, Woodward Avenue. And then um, Ronald Evans hit him again a couple of times. He doesn't. Re- he claims to this day he doesn't remember anything because he blacked out because he was in such a drunken rage. Uh, but there were witnesses. There were two cops that came over, held him at gunpoint and said, put the bat down. And then Vincent was still alive, but unfortunately, and I this is all from court testimony and witness accounts. And I also interviewed uh, one of the police officers involved who has his own amazing story. Uh, his life was incredible too. But anyway, uh, there was brain matter on the floor. He was starting to lose consciousness. His friend testified that his friend said in Chinese, it's not fair before, uh, and those are the famous words, going into unconsciousness and basically going into a coma. The ambulance arrived. He was taken to the hospital. The police arrested Ronald Evans and his son. They were sent to the police station, the Highland Park Police Station. The son wrote a statement and was eventually released and then went to the hospital to get stitches. His mother came to pick him up. Uh, Ronald Evans spent the night in jail, uh, isolation cell, and then the next day he went home. Four days later, June 23rd, 1982, Vincent Chin died in a coma and was five days before his wedding. The original date, June 28th, 1982, that was the date for Vincent Chin's wedding, ended up becoming the date for his funeral instead. And everybody that came to the wedding at this point had flown in from China, from all over the country, from Michigan. They had all shown up that week for the wedding. They instead went to his funeral. Here's the other thing too, now I want to back up and talk to you about the court system. Detroit was known as the murder capital of the country back in the early 1980s because there were so many murders. It was, everything happened. It, it basically was a factory town. You had white flight into the suburbs. You had the uh, leftover trauma, the aftermath of the 1967, uh, the Detroit riots, the Detroit, the uprising. Detroit already was starting to go downhill because at one point in the 1940s and 50s, Detroit was the place to be. It was like the Paris of the Midwest. Like people, if you wanted to go anywhere, it was Detroit. It was thriving with all the company, the car companies and everything. So by the 60s and 70s and by the 80s, Detroit was a shadow of its former self. It was an empty shell. So basically the legal system was overburdened. They had so many cases going through. So by the time this went to court, it was February 8th, 1983. Ronald Ebens pled guilty and Michael Nitz pled no contest to reduced charges of manslaughter. Now, Originally, was it first degree murder? Were they allegedly looking for Vincent Chin, as some people claim they were? Or were they just going to the hospital and accidentally saw, just coincidentally see Vincent Chin? There are witnesses that said, no, they were trying to find Vincent. Evans and Nitz to this day say, no, we weren't trying to find him. Those witnesses are lying. We were trying to find a hospital. We just happened to drive by the McDonald's where they were sitting outside, you know, waiting for their other friends to catch up with them. So it's this horrible, but I'm just laying out the facts for you. So, so 
there was enough evidence to say one of the judges said second degree murder because you had time to cool down. This was kind of premeditated. But again, because of the conflicting testimony, it got reduced to manslaughter because with the lawyers, they said, look, if we plead bargain down to manslaughter, there's a very good chance the judge will find them guilty and they'll get time behind bars. Even though it's not the greatest sentence, we're guaranteed jail time for manslaughter or so they thought. So they pled guilty. So March 11th, uh, I mean, March 16th, 1983, Wayne County Circuit Judge Charles Kaufman did find Ebens and Nitz guilty of manslaughter. However, he sentenced them each to three years probation and a $3,000 fine and no jail time. That's wild. And nobody was called in. Yeah, yeah. And his reasoning was at the time for manslaughter, you could get anywhere from zero years to 15 years. So the lawyers all thought, oh, they're going to get at least five to 10 years in jail or something like this. But they, everyone was shocked. They were like, they got zero jail time. They got three years probation. And the judge said, uh, the judge basically said, look, they're not going to do this again. They're not a threat to society. And he actually had given other people similar sentences. So he was, and one of the things that was fascinating about Judge Charles Collins Hoffman was that he was a prisoner of war during World War II. He was, his plane was shot down and he was uh, a prisoner of war in Japan. And he actually learned how to speak Japanese and became kind of like a negotiator to help get his fellow soldiers more food. And, you know, and so because of that, a lot of people said, oh, he's racist. He hates Japanese people because he was a prisoner of war. To this day, he said, um, he died, of course, but uh, he was a much older man. He, he passed away. But, you know, he said, I'm, it, it broke his heart. He said, I'm not racist. I he Because he was one of the few judges who had actually been in jail, he had a whole system of mercy. And his famous words were, let the punishment fit the criminal, not the crime. And in hindsight, not good, not good, not good. Yeah, no, 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 trust me. No, (laughs) not good. Optically, bad thing to say. Um, And so that's what made people realize if Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz were Asian and if Vincent Chin was white, would they have gotten the same sentiment? You know, no one knows. But anyway, basically, that's the famous thing that woke up everybody. So a bunch of people, including uh, lawyers, Roland Huang and uh, James Shimura and uh, Helen Zia, everybody's just reading the newspaper and this article comes out. And what was interesting was it was also, they showed a picture of Vincent Chin with his bride-to-be. And one of the reasons why I, got, I caught a lot of Asian Americans, uh, their attention was they never saw themselves in the media. They were so tiny. There were so few of them back then mm-hmm. in living in Detroit. So they're like, oh my God, Asian Americans are on the front page of this newspaper. Oh, wait, what? It, it led to then meeting in a Chinese restaurant, March 31st, 1983. And that's when they realized there's something we have to do. And what they found out was because they were found guilty of manslaughter, they could not be tried again for killing Vincent Chin because that would be double jeopardy. They founded a group called American Citizens for Justice, where they decided we're going to try to find justice in another way. The reason why they called themselves American Citizens for Justice was because they wanted to say, we are American. 
American. This is all inclusive. It's not just Asian Americans because it ended up being African American groups, Jewish groups, white groups, uh, uh, um, women's groups, Latino groups, uh, uh, Muslim American groups. A bunch of people started attending. It was majority Asian in this group, but they had, it was a very multicultural movement. And so that's why they called themselves American Citizens for Justice because they realized we need to remind everybody we're Americans. You know, we're not, you know, stop calling us these racist slurs. We're American. So basically, they actually convinced Judge Kaufman to reconsider his sentence. So then he agreed to look over all the evidence again. And one of the problems with the original hearing was nobody told Vincent Chin's family that the hearing was happening. Wow. Are you, you know, serious? The defense lawyers, yeah, prosecutor wasn't there. Now, the reason why the prosecutor wasn't there was because it was an overburdened, I'm not saying this is an excuse, so let me explain the facts. This was an overburdened burdened court system. So the prosecutors didn't have time to be in court because then they would never get any work done. So a lot of times they didn't even bother showing up. I'm bringing this up for a specific reason. I'm going to explain later why I'm bringing this up. So he goes through everything again. So basically, Vincent Chin, the victim's family was not there to uh, say how this killing impacted their lives. It was just so, you know, so basically the defense lawyers were able to spin their defendants in a very positive light, which led to Judge Kaufman's mercy and him saying the punishment should fit the criminal, not the crime, not realizing that had Vincent Chin's family been there, he probably may have looked at these two men in a different light. We don't know. And I'm bringing this up for a reason. So, um, and actually, I'm going to jump ahead. We'll go back to the case. Because of what happened to Vincent Chin, Michigan changed their manslaughter sentencing and they made it so that the uh, victim's family are now allowed to give a statement of impact to the judge. So they, the victims and their families now have a voice. They didn't have a voice back then because it was just, we got we got to get through 8 billion court cases. We don't have time for this. Okay, okay, whatever, you know, prosecute. And now the prosecutor has to be there. So one of his legacies was helping change for the future victims of future crimes, they now have a say. Did the sentencing change too? Uh, the sentencing, no, I'm gonna go, I'm, we're gonna take a step back, I'm gonna go back to that. But I just wanted to say that's part of this is there was a, a legal legacy that happened with Vincent Chin that was very important for future victims. So that was Vincent's, Vincent Chin's death was not in vain because he helped change uh, how the court system worked in Michigan. And victim impact statements became a thing across the country as well. And with manslaughter, you know, um, it's not as easy getting that probation now because people are realizing you do need to, uh, depending on the circumstances, you know, you, you justice needs to be served. So I think that was a positive thing that happened because of this case. Now going back, what happened was the judge then said, no, I stand by what I did. So at this point, Vincent Chin's mother, Lily Chin, and Helen Zia, and all the members of the American Citizens for Justice, and also Stuart Quo, who came from California to help out because he is a civil rights lawyer. So he came out to offer his help as well. And Lisa Chan was the uh, one of the Asian American lawyers also involved uh, with this case. What happened was they realized we can't charge Ebens and Nitz twice, but the Fancy Pants nightclub, that's a place of public accommodation. According to Vincent Chin's civil rights, he had every right to be here. So Vincent, they found a loophole and they went to the Department of Justice, who then uh, a federal grand jury, in, by November of 1983, a federal grand jury indicted Ebens and Nitz on two counts of interfering with Vincent Chin's right to use and enjoy a place of public accommodation on account of his 
his race and also on conspiracy charges. They conspired to prevent him from being in the club. And so they were able to then have what was the first civil rights violation trial for an Asian American in this country because they violated his civil rights, his constitutional right to be at that club. So the first federal trial began in June, June 5th, 1984. The first federal trial began at the Eastern District of Michigan. And on June 28th, 1984, the jury found Ebens guilty of interfering with Vincent Chin's civil rights. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And Michael Nitz was cleared of all charges because at the end of the day, he didn't hold the bat. It was a very complicated case. Read about it in my book. Okay. So, <laughs> but uh, everybody so basically, buys the book. Yeah, everybody, yeah. Um, September 18th, 1984, Evans was sentenced to 25 years in prison by U.S. District Judge Anna Diggs Taylor. Now, I just want to throw out something that's really interesting about the judge. She was the first African American woman appointed to a federal to the federal bench. Wow. And she actually was involved. She was involved with um, the famous Mississippi burning. Uh, the the movie Mississippi Burning. It's about three. It was about uh, two white and one African American activists who were trying to help people vote in Mississippi, and they were murdered by white supremacists. They were murdered by the KKK, and there was a huge cover up. She was part of the the. She was one of the one young. She was part of the young lawyers that went down to help try that case. Wow. So she, everybody involved, had ha, they all have such fascinating. It, it's amazing, just like you know, with with the judge being a, a Japanese prisoner of war, with the judge being the first African-American woman, you know, just it, it's it, there's so many fascinating things about this case, these coincidences. But here's what happened. Um, September 11th, 1986, Ronald Eben's con- guilty conviction is reversed by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on a legal technicality. I mentioned Lisa Chan before. Lisa Chan sadly passed away late last year and is an is an amazing lawyer and has an amazing legacy. Uh, she they believe that she coached the witnesses in the first trial, so that's why they were they were able to provide the tapes in which she interviewed all three witnesses: the two white friends and the one Chinese American friend. What does that mean, coaching the witness? Well, they accused her. To this day, she denies coaching them, and I've interviewed the witnesses, and they too deny that they were coached. And to this day in both court trials, they all said on the stand, we were not coached, but it gave off a sense of impropriety. And the reason why was the reason why she interviewed them completely she was just doing her due diligence she was a new young lawyer and she wanted to focus on interviewing them and not being distracted by taking notes so she thought being a smart young lawyer just said I'm just going to interview all three of you at once I'm going to record it just so that way I can make sure all the quotes are accurate she was just being a good girl scout basically but the problem was that was a rookie mistake because it looked as if she was coaching them like let's get our stories straight and um um, she wrote a memoir about it and talked about how a lot of her quotes were taken out of context or misunderstood uh, because English was uh, because she also was British. Uh, she was not used to speaking certain English idioms, so she did not know the American the the English idiomatic uh, expression. Let's get our stories. Straight. Oh shit! She, said, yeah, she want she just wanted to make sure that the fact she's just she's just like she meant facts. Yeah. And so to the to jury, it sounds like let's get our stories straight. Nudge nudge. Win wink wink so there's so many problems with this case so unfortunately because of that they had a second trial so the new trial began on april 22nd 1987 so at this point robert evans has been at home he's never spent a day in jail 
Mm-hmm. And on May 1st, 1987, the Cincinnati jury acquitted Evans. He is cleared of all charges, meaning that neither Ronald Evans nor Michael Nitt spent a full day in jail, full 24 hours in jail for the beating death of Vincent Chin. My God. However, there was a third lawsuit. There was a civil lawsuit for the wrongful death of Vincent Shin. And in that civil suit in July of 1987, he was ordered to pay $1.5 million to the estate of Vincent Shin. To this date, he has not paid a single penny of that. And to this day, it's increased because of um, inflation. And also now it's like several million dollars. So that that is the uh, story. And Lily Chin, who fought, you know, she went to Washington, D.C. to talk to the Department of Justice to get the indictment. She was just, she was on the Phil Donahue show. She was everywhere. Uh, She went back to China, her heart broken. Yeah. And she eventually came back to America because she was sadly diagnosed with cancer. And then she passed away uh, in in America. And she actually died two weeks before the 20th anniversary of her son's death. And the three of them, the family, uh, his father had also, just so you know, his father had died six months before he died. His dad had, he passed away from an ailment. So um, the family, I mean, they are together again. But um, what happened after this was, and what people don't realize is today, but you have to remember in the 1980s, he was front page news. Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, like oh, Tom Brokaw on the, you know, on the national news, the the six o'clock news or whatever. He was the lead story everywhere. I, I have videos of Dan Rather saying, Vincent Chin uh, in tonight's breaking news story. I mean, he made national news. He made people aware of Asian Americans. He made people aware that Asian Americans suffer from racism. We are not the model minority. We are not. He, what his death did, he lives on today. He is a symbol of us being willing not to stand down, to fight back against racism, he is also a symbol of uh, unification because he united all the different disparate Asian groups because before Vincent Chin, you know, the term Asian American, that was more of a college term. That was more of um, our baby boomer Asian Americans. God bless them. They started fighting on school campuses all in the 60s and 70s because of the racism that happened with World War II, the racism from the Korean War and from the Vietnam War. All these radical Asian American student groups on college campuses started fighting back with protests and raising awareness and so social consciousness, and that was more on college campuses. Vincent Chin made that mainstream. He made the Chinese American group, the Korean American community, the Japanese American community. Like none of us liked each other back then because of our country, because of Japan and Korea colonization, because of China and Japan. We all, we didn't hang out back in the early eighties. We stayed in our own little tiny islands. Vincent Chin made us all realize, wait a minute, we're all Asian Americans, Uh, non-Asians, especially the, the racist white community. They don't see us as Korean or Chinese, they see us all as chinks, as Japs, as gooks, as whatever, as these horrible racist terms. We have to band together. We have to put aside what our countries went through because we're Americans. We need to get together. So he helped make this 
mainstream. And Helen Zia, Roland Huang, James Shimura, Lisa Chan, Stuart Kuo, all the famous people involved with uh, American Citizens for Justice, they helped bring this together. They helped bring uh, um, Horace Sheffield, who was head of one of the African-American community groups in Detroit, the African-American community banded together with the Asian-Americans. You know, the as I said before, like a lot of the different groups all got together, white people in Detroit. Every uh, He unified so many people. Just a couple of years ago, when there were three men, uh, three Indian American men who were killed in various hate crimes after um, the 2016 presidential election. When that happened, that made news in 2017. Vincent Shin's name came up in 2017 because uh, people started wondering, is this the Indian version of Vincent Shin happening now? There was an uptick again in um, Asian American hate crimes because of what happened with our presidential election. So he was starting to come, come back. And I think now, especially with the coronavirus and with the the awful racism happening right now um his name is back in the news because you know every time something like this happens it brings back up vincent chin and his legacy i cried a lot writing this book because i had to read through autopsy reports civil court trials all the interviews it it, it just it gave this writing this book gave me nightmares it was just so tragic and so horrific everything that happened yeah, I'm so fucking angry just hearing about it right now. Yeah, and and the and the legal aspects, just the unfairness of it all. You know, it, it's, it's it's all bullshit. It's all holy fucking jeez. How much bullshit can you lump into one court case? You know what? A, a lot of it is like it's he said, she said, because it's not about what he did versus what those two white guys did. It's about what, mm-hmm. you know, that exotic dancer said or what Lisa Chan said. So it's like, yeah, exactly. you know, in a court of law, like nobody's going to believe women and nobody's going to believe people of color, period. You bring up a good point because the, the hashtag Me Too movement, which is just done some amazing things. I'm wondering, when are we going to have our Me Too, hashtag Me Too moment for racism? Because nobody seems to believe us unless we have actual visual proof and it has to be like so, you know, there's always like, oh, well, maybe you're overreacting, you're being sensitive or just there's so much dismissal whenever we try to bring up, I think I just went through a racist microaggression or a racist incident. And we have to prove five times as much as anyone else that racism actually happened to us. And I really hope that we have a Me Too movement for racism to let people know that just believe what we say. And one thing to show you is with the Me Too movement for women, one of the controversies is that, you know, with some of the men who have been found guilty, you know, they say, oh, but she shouldn't have worn that dress or those horrible misogynistic, hateful things that they say. With Vincent Chin, it was, uh, yeah, he threw the first punch. So suddenly Vincent Chin goes from being a victim to the perpetrator. Oh, he had it coming. He threw the first punch. What? You know, so a lot, a lot of that was also covered in the media and in uh, the the initial hearing. You know, where it was like, you know, and and here's the thing: well, you have to be the perfect victim to get any kind of justice. Yeah, exactly. It's like so he had a short temper. So he was he was drinking. He was at a strip club. You know, it's like there are so many things that people were like, oh, this isn't the perfect thing. But that's the whole point. It's not about being. It's not about being perfect. It's about being human. No human deserves this. And and I think that, um, but it, it's a very fascinating case because like I said, it's not quote unquote black and white. There are a lot of really interesting complex issues legally behind it. What happened in the court, I, I learned so much. It, it made me kind of go, man, maybe my parents were right. Maybe I should have gone to law school. This stuff is fascinating, you know, instead of being an English major. That prosecutor seems like a piece of shit. It was just like a, one of those um, state prosecutors. Yeah, just like not, right? not showing up. 
I mean, was he racist too? That I was I, he like a Vietnam? No, no, no. It was not any of that. It was again. It was about the overburdened court system. You had a flawed court system that was overburdened. People weren't able. Even Lisa Chan, who was uh, a lawyer, sometimes couldn't make it to all her. You know, all the all the lawyers I interviewed. It was it was hard for people to show up to that because they were. It was that. This is the murder capital of America in the 80s. So you have to remember, you have a flawed system. So it just then snowballs from there. So, you know, part of it, racism was involved, but yes, there was also an overburdened court system. One other thing I will bring up too is that Asian Americans were not considered people of color. We were considered white back. And one thing this case did too was that it made people realize, oh, Asian Americans are also involved. The civil rights, all of that applies to Asian Americans. It applies to Latinos. It applies Latinx. It applies. Race is not just black and white. And I think that the Vincent Chin case, the biggest legacy it has is making people aware that we're not adjacent white people. You know, it's it's we need to be protected by we need to be, yeah. We need to be protected by civil rights. And he was the first civil rights case for an Asian American. That is huge. And, and it's it's something that um, we owe to him. We owe to his spirit and his family and his friends and to the American Citizens for Justice. That group still exists today, to Helen Zia and all the activists. We owe it to all of them and to Vincent Chin and his family to keep this legacy alive. Do you feel like anything of consequence, like legally or institutionally, has changed, though, because of Vincent Chin's case? I mean, I spoke earlier about Michigan and how it changed how hearings went, because now prosecutor has to be there and the victims have to be informed of when the hearing is happening and they are allowed to read a statement of impact to the judge before he makes his decision. Before that, it was all willy nilly. It just whatever happened, happened. You know, you do you. Too bad you didn't show up. Oh, whatever. But today that's no longer the case. So he actually had a tangible effect on helping improve the court system not only in Michigan, but it spread. So that, that to me is a good thing, but that should never have been broken in the first place. That's also, I think, what's a little frustrating. It's also frustrating to me because that seems very small and inconsequential and like not super related to what actually happened. It's not inco- it's not inconsequential to the victims, though. The people, the victims have a voice now. They can. He did provide a voice for people that no longer have a voice. I mean, in terms of changing the overall power dynamics. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, it's depressing. I, I know, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, I'm bummed I'm still talking about this. I thought by the time... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. I, I, I'm yeah. class of, a high school class of 1987. I thought by the time I hit my fifth decade, I wouldn't be having these conversations. I thought it'd be all happy by now. And I, we've taken so many steps backwards. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, just in December, and this was in Orange County, so I wasn't too surprised, but... Uh, a car drove by me. I, I live in LA, but I was in Orange County, and uh, a car drove by with a couple of white guys in it, and they shout out. They shouted out also chink at me as they drove by, and I was like, I haven't gotten chinked since 1994. What is going on? And it was a precursor. It was, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, and I was sitting going, I thought that was done with. I thought that was my, you know, I'm from the generation of reality bites. I thought that was, and and it was, a, it was a wake up call to me too that on the nose racism, really obvious cliched racism, it's back, and in fact, it never went away. It never went away, and it's gotten worse. It's got, it's gotten worse because the people in power are encouraging it and giving it a voice. So it frustrates me. But I will say this, as angry as I am, 
as your Korean Anni, your older sister, I, I will say that for me, I'm always, I'm not a Debbie Downer. I'm always a half glass full. The one thing that it did do is it said, okay, Paula, don't get complacent. You're starting to get a little complacent because things were getting better and you hadn't been called a racist slur in a very long time. No, don't get complacent. Uh, working on this book, I've been working on this book for a few years now and, and the research for several years. Uh, this book is is like my shield. It's, it's helped. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. defend myself. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness you're here to write something like this because it's really, really necessary. Thank you. Yeah. No. And, and and it is. I will say it is. It is an honor to work on this book, and it it is a love letter letter to the Asian American and also the Asian American Pacific Islander because there are also. Uh, one thing I forgot to say was uh, there are a lot of Asian American Pacific Islander people in the community that also fought for Vincent Chin. Uh, a couple of them are mentioned in the book as well uh, that played pivotal roles. This book is my love letter to our community, and it's also a love letter to our allies who fought alongside us. Yeah, for sure. I think people tend to like focus on the negatives, but we actually do have a lot of allies. And I think that's really important, especially now, because in a time like this, whatever an Asian person says, nobody who's not Asian who wants to keep you down, they're not going to listen to you. So like you need to rely on allies. Yeah. And I think that that's the enduring thing about this legacy. Yes, it's a depressing story. Justice was never served and uh, an innocent man was killed. Lives everywhere were ruined. And even today, actually, uh, with the coronavirus, I was going to say American Citizens for Justice and some of the people I interviewed who were the original founders of that group uh, have spoken out to the media again because of the rise, the spike in anti-Chinese and anti-Asian racism in Michigan and all over the United States. For the Asian American community in Detroit, it really brought up a lot of trauma. We cannot have another Vincent Chin. We have to make sure people survive this. I mean, there's already been a few deaths yeah and and properties uh people vandalizing businesses yeah somebody was comparing this like huge incidence of a bunch of shops being uh, vandalized and like stuff destroyed to crystal knock oh my gosh wow well you know what's interesting too is i think it's also just going into education one of the things i found in my research as well was uh there there have been a number of um, academic surveys done on what's taught in american school systems for ages kindergarten through 12th grade and they found that only until recently asian american history is just never it's not in the books yeah and so every time people talk about you know people are like wait asians suffer from racism and you're like hello do you remember the chinese exclusion act the first federal a law signed by President Arthur in uh, May 6, 1882, prohibiting immigration based on skin color because of the Chinese laborers. Do people remember, you know, Executive Order 9066? That was 1942, the Roosevelt uh, signing that for the Japanese Americans. It's people are just always shocked when they hear all this. Yeah, it's so bad. When I was a kid, the only two things I learned in history, like history was just American history. And the only things I learned about were the American Revolution and the Civil War. And my teachers, all my white teachers, every single one of them, every year would be like, remember, slavery was not the reason for oh, the Civil War. Me too. Oh my God. I told you. Yes. Yeah. I- I, I, yeah, yeah I, I hate. Yeah, it's funny. It's uh, and, and that depresses me because I thought that stopped in the eighties. And so you're. Oh no, I'm a millennial. That did not stop. This Gen Xer's not happy hearing this. I thought that nonsense was done with, and that's why I think with this book, uh, more more books, more history courses need to be taught because the more educated you are, you know, the the more power you're given, and that 
opens your eyes and gives you more compassion. You know, they actually, it's a little, not off topic, but they also came out with a survey saying that kids who are raised to become really good book readers, like they like to read, they actually develop more empathy and compassion at a younger age. Because when you read a book, you empathize with the character. So the more we read about Vincent Chin or other Asian American historical figures, or or even just seeing Asian Americans in the media, whether, whether it has anything to do with Asian American history, just, you know, what I love is I love the improvement in TV commercials where they'll just show like an Asian American guy or an Asian American woman in some ad that has nothing to do with being Asian American. You know, it's it's a, it's a Geico commercial or something. You know, it's it's like <laughs> oh great yeah you know we need we need insurance too or what you know it's it's um to me that also is very very important the main the mainstreaming of our images there should be both because a lot of people say oh I'm so tired of slavery history books or Chinese exclusion books or Vincent Chin, you know, it's like, can't we just show Asian Americans doing just regular boring things? And yes, we, sh- we do need to see that, but we can't stop the other narratives. We need to have both because with non-people of color, basically with white history, um, we see white Americans in everyday normal things. And we also see them in, you know, oppressive things, women, women's rights, that kind of thing. And so, and that's great because then what that does is that makes the mainstream default white community very rich and diverse in their history. We're not rich and diverse in our history yet. So we need to have both. Yeah. And I feel like just having mainstreaming of Asian faces if it's all about just like feeling like Asians are included in Americanness in general without examining the Orientalism yes I agree. That does nothing. That's the same as model minority, you know, like a white adjacent status that is bestowed upon you, but you still have no power to hold that narrative or define yourself. Yeah, and yeah, that's a good point. I want to end by just like circling back to anti-Asian crimes. We, we've we talked a little bit about how to stay safe, how to defend yourself against a hate crime if necessary. But like, let's say you have been impacted or somebody that you love has been impacted what are some good organizations that you can go to to protect your civil rights to get that legal redress as much of it as you can well i will bring up one website uh, that has been cited a lot in the media it's the asian pacific policy and planning council a3 pecan and the website is asian pacific policy and planning council.org if you go to this website they have a tracker a hate crime tracker that says stop aap I hate. And you can click below to file an incident report in many different languages from English, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese. And in fact, on April 23rd, they released a press release saying in one month, Stop AAPI Hate receives almost 1,500 incident reports of verbal harassment, shunning, and physical assaults. One thing as a writer and as a reporter, I'm constantly writing down stuff as soon as I can because your brain, one of the things is witness testimony and trials. Witness reports tend to be very unreliable because your memory starts to playing tricks on you and you you may remember stuff that may not have happened. There's a lot of, it's not always the most reliable thing. So one thing I, I would suggest personally is if something happens to you, as soon as you can, if you don't have an iPhone on you, write everything down on a piece of paper and then and timestamp it. Take a picture of it or write it down on your co- computer and send yourself an email so it's dated and timestamped because it's fresh on your mind and you can write down everything as soon as you can. 
hand. For me as a reporter, you know, whenever anything happened when I was reporting something, I would immediately pull out my reporter's notebook and write it down because I know I'm going to forget later whether the woman was wearing a polka dotted dress or a red dress. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just, uh, or a quote, that kind of thing. You know, and I think one thing that was going back to Vincent Chin, the fact that Racine Colwell, whom, you know, I think is a hero, uh, when she kept saying she was so consistent in her testimony, she said every single time, you know, it's, she said she did not delineate or do a variation on the quote that she heard. What's interesting is Renee Tajima Pena and Christine Choi did the Oscar nominated, the Academy Award nominated famous documentary called Who Killed Vincent Chin, which I think should be required viewing for everybody. They interview one of the jurors after the first case, the jurors that found him guilty. And they said that out of all the witnesses, Racine Colwell's testimony was the most consistent and the most believable. Uh, the reason why they ultimately decided he was guilty was because they felt that he conveniently forgot too many things. They found him to be an, they found him to be an unreliable witness. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like, how does he remember that Vincent Chin said, oh, you want to fight some more, but not all the sh all the stuff that he said that night? Yeah. And and so so it's very um, so it's it's a complicated case. And at the end of the day, the not guilty too. it was it was a technicality because that's the thing with the law. All you need is that one thing sometimes that can throw a whole case out because of just one. You know, it's like I didn't read my I didn't read him his Miranda rights. Whole case gets yeah. thrown out, you know, so I think that just from a legal standpoint that's what makes this very complicated and uh very complex case and and it's and it's frustrating and and i mean you know, like i said it's 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 heartbreaking but i think that at the end of the day we take our anger we take our frustration and we channel it towards remembering you know trying to be positive like the fact that there's this stop aapi hate crime track what does that do that's a positive thing that's well what it is is it's providing a written record it's because you cannot deny statistics one of the things is that the fact that that they're releasing they're saying there were 1500 incident reports this is providing more evidence but you know and it's, what? it's not it's i think to raising awareness to getting uh to getting a lot of the politicians to start protesting in congress they're you know judy chu and a bunch of people uh they have been speaking out it raises awareness for our policymakers to start looking into what laws can we enact what bills can we write to help so i think that it's it's um it has its own kind of trickle down effect because by seeing all this it concerns people in power that can make policy change, that can change things tangibly. So we have to hope that all of this moves forward that way. At least that's what I think of it as. It's like, good, this is this is written record. You can never get rid of it. And it's helping a politician maybe write a new bill that can stop this in the future. Of course, none of this should have happened in the first place. And hopefully there should have been those bills existing in the first place. But we don't have enough people of color in Congress, in our Senate, in our uh, judicial system. In, and so the more... We we can get more diverse people and and allies in the government that can affect and change this. Then hopefully we won't have this in the future. I, I, it's I'm it's overwhelming. Mm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, cool. But, but I think yeah. I, I hope this helps. Did that answer your question at least? Or I mean, not that I think there's one set answer though. I think that this is just um, it's a continuing battle. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. I think we'll just uh, end there. Okay. Thank you so much for chatting. This was like really, really informative. Oh, thank you so much. No, yeah, and and again, I left a lot of details out. There's there's a lot more in here, and in in the book, I'll say that there are exclusive interviews and uh, people who have never talked since the trials ended. Uh, you know, I've gotten them to talk. So uh, we have we have fresh quotes in this book. So I think it'll be uh, really illuminating. And yeah, that's I think what I have to say about the book. I think that uh, people will find stuff that uh, hasn't written about before that I. 
I think there's there's new information in this book that I think is very illuminating and hopefully will inspire people to take up the mantle and continue and to keep Vincent's name alive. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again, Paula. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and consider donating to our Patreon. Have a good week. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.